0: Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli.
1: I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carillo. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening
2: to the Tennis Podcast.
0: Hello, everybody. Indian Wells is at the quarterfinal stage, so Matt and I thought we'd better come back on and have a chat about it all because. You don't need more than a couple of days passing during a Masters 1000, Matt, and uh, there's too much to talk about to fit into a weekly show. So here we are, Um, and uh, we've got Catherine joining us as well via voice note, which means she's fast asleep at the moment, Uh, but uh, we've got ourselves into quite a nice little system of us waking up to her voice notes and Catherine waking up to our podcast. So it's all working very nicely.
1: It does work very nicely. Yes, Catherine is very pleased with herself that she's managed to figure out a way to both be on the show and also to sleep during the show. It's <laughs> it's quite an impressive combination, two of her favorite things, being on the podcast and sleeping, and she's managing them both at once. Uh so yeah, and and it's been a little while since we did a did a Thursday pod, hasn't it? But uh these these big combined 1000 events very much call cool for them, I think.
0: They do. Uh, I do feel as we approach our 1000th edition of the tennis podcast, I think by the time we reach 2000, Catherine is going to have worked out a way to both be asleep and be live on the podcast. <laughs> and also make sense. I think that that's something she's going to crack. Billie Jean um, style. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. Um, so yeah, we've got loads and loads to talk about. Um, I should also just mark your card as well. We're also planning a friend's questions podcast in a couple of weeks time. Um, So if you want to become a friend and submit questions for Catherine, Matt and myself to answer uh, in our Friends Tennis Podcast um, listener questions, show in a couple of weeks time do become a friend our link is in the show notes and you'll get access to loads more uh, shows that we've already done that are in the archive there waiting for you uh, telling the story of Juan Martin Del Potro, Lina, uh, various other shows including my first Wimbledon and mine goes back to mid-90s folks uh, for the first time I went there and even the 80s uh, when I first saw my uh, initial Wimbledon and decided I wanted to work in this sport. Um, so yeah, become a friend. Now, before we go any further, let's hear what Catherine has been up to in Indian Wells.
2: Hello, folks. Uh, sorry, once again, I'm not live on the podcast. I will be, uh, hopefully, fast asleep at the time of recording. Um, Thanks to, thanks to Matt and David for... For holding the fort, um, and for allowing me to be a listener uh, during this tournament, which uh, I found really enjoyable on Monday, that was that was my prep basically listening listening to the podcast and listening to uh, to Matt recount in graphic detail uh, the entire history of the Kyrgios rude uh, agro. Uh, I enjoyed that so very much, so thank you. Um it's it's still going great here in Indian Wells. I really am enjoying it. It is it's the most vitamin D I've had <laughs> in so many years. Um I can't remember the last time I spent this much sort of sustained time outside and it's uh it's lovely and um there are lots of really great Great little stories, or big stories, even I mean, how on earth is Nadal eighteen and o for the year and counting how on earth um i'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around that I find it bizarre um that could be out of date, but by the time you're listening to this, he's playing Nick Kyrgios um tomorrow or probably today at the time of you listening to this, or yesterday or the day before yesterday. Um, <clears throat> yeah, brilliant stories in the women's side. Paola Badossa, hopefully um, will rescue some dignity for me after I my men's pick lost in the second round, I think. Maybe third round. Anyway, let's not dwell on that. Uh, My new pick is Carlos Alcaraz and I feel very good about that indeed. Um, Anyway, uh, everything is uh, going well for Prime Video. Uh, One of the questions that David uh, and Matt have asked me is um, what I think of uh, the Slams uh, moving to go to a 10-point tie break from 6-all in the deciding set, um, which of course is what the Australian Open have been doing for a few years, and now all the slams have decided to to be uniform. Hashtag Tennis United about it all. Um, the, everyone, Everyone's very, you know, all the tennis people, the, you know, week in, week out, beat tennis journalists, are, you know, very exercised by by this news and it you know it makes me wonder if I'm missing something or not quite as nerdy a tennis fan as them that that I'm not quite as exercised by it I mean I can I can generate some feelings about it um but I sort of like it fifth set tie break and I'm I like the ten point tie break they're making it a bit different so I'm I'm okay with it yeah I, I, I would have been okay with it staying as it was um, but I'm but I'm okay with it changing what I'm not okay with is um, the, the decision to apply gender equality in this m- most bizarre of circumstances where the consequence albeit perhaps an unintended one is that um, in order to solve a men's tennis problem women's tennis is making a sacrifice Um, when was the last time men's tennis made a sacrifice to solve a women's tennis problem Um, it's literally never happened Um, and what should be happening is tennis should be doing whatever it can to, to stop women making sacrifices of any kind anyway. Um, that's that's the element of it that I can get very exercised about. The specifics of, you know, at what stage in the fifth set it should be and whether it should be a six seven-point tie-break or a ten-point tie-break. Nah, I think this sounds fine. Um, <laughs> I look forward to listening to to David getting very very worked up one way or another about it but um but yeah i'm I'm okay with this set tie breaks um I can imagine there's lots of French people that are less okay with it, you know that that with their commitment to to playing out deciding sets was you know was what made them special and unique after you know Wimbledon and and the Australian Open changed their rules and the French like to be special and unique don't they they like to do things their way so anyway I can imagine there are lots of people having lots of feelings about it but I'm having other than the the misplaced pursuit of gender gender equality point I'm I'm. I seem to be having fewer feelings about it than everyone else, which, um, which I suppose is unusual. Um, other than that, my my highlight of the week is probably uh, Martin Martin Novratilová congratulating me live on air for my pronunciation of Bertic van der Zandt's <laughs> Um Unfortunately, he's now lost, so my opportunities to be. Praised by Martina, of of have disappeared, um, but yeah, that was very good, um, and yeah, I'm just look, I'm just really enjoying it, and uh, I feel incredibly lucky to be here. And uh, if I ever took it for granted before, I certainly am not now. Um, and yeah, it's uh, is a treat, and. Yeah, I really don't know who the winner's going to be. Somebody one of the um one of our crew members earlier, cameraman, sort of that, you know, very into sport and, you know, passing interest in tennis, but was, you know, enjoyed covering the sport this week, was was keen to know more and was sort of quizzing me about, about various things and various players and he said, Okay, so who's the favourite? Um and I looked through the drawer, I looked through the men's drawer and I went, Huh. I'm not not sure there is one. <laughs> and I looked through the women's draw and I went, huh. Not <laughs> really not sure there is one. Um I suppose it's slightly clearer in the women's. Yeah, I, I would say probably Bedossa and Schwantec, um, at this stage, but still still not that clean cut, clear cut. Um and in the men's okay, Nadal's eighteen and oh, but he's he's telling us that his foot is painful and i don't know alcaraz just looks like he's ready to just eat people <laughs> for for breakfast lunch and dinner he looks like he's on the cusp of changing the game quite frankly it's that fearsome it really is he's he's making making people shudder <laughs> Um, you know, I've heard people wandering around the grounds, and this is an informed tennis crowd going, oh, my God, I just caught sight of Alcaraz for the first time. Um, I think, a, a apologies, I can't remember exactly who, but a tennis podcast fan came up to me the other day and said, look, I've heard you talking about Alcaraz plenty, but I was still taken aback uh, when I when I saw him play. Um, so... Yeah. Anyway, that is, those are all answers to questions that you didn't ask me. So I'll I'll stop waffling now. I will go to bed um, and I'll look forward to listening to the tennis podcast in the morning. Can't wait.
0: Well, I enjoyed the answers to questions we didn't ask. Um, and, uh, and I actually think that final point is a very good one about the lack of clear favourites in these two draws. Now, I'm sure a lot of Rafael Nadal fans are looking at this, listening to this and thinking, well, hold on, Our bloke has just won, how many is it, 18 out of 18 matches this year? Of course he's the favourite. And on paper, I would say, yes, he is. But it doesn't really feel like that to me having seen him play, having seen the physical state he appears to be in, and seeing some of the opposition at the moment and how they're playing. What what do you think, Matt? I know you saw Nadal's match to get to the quarterfinals. I didn't. What's your your assessment?
1: Yes, I picked uh, Shviontek and Nadal to win these titles, and I feel better about one of those picks than the other. And the one that I feel better about is not the guy who's won 18 matches out of 18 this year. It's, it's not wow. Rafael Nadal. Um, that's not to say that Nadal can't win this title, but he is struggling. And he, and he admitted as much yesterday in his post-match press conference. He was asked about the foot uh, because a lot of people have picked up on a little bit of limping this week from Nadal, which I don't think was visible quite so much in Acapulco. Um, we know it's a chronic foot problem. We know he can't cure it. He has to manage it. And it does seem like he's had a little bit of a flare up this week with it. Um, must say I didn't notice the problems myself when I was watching him live uh, against Corda in that first match. I went back and watched it after people commented on it and I thought, okay, yeah, there is a bit of a limp there. Didn't seem quite so bad against Evans. And then it was really visible against Apelka yesterday. Um, it is sometimes a little bit hard to tell because he does that funny walk anyway because of his superstition of not wanting to step on the lines. So sometimes you, yes. so sometimes you think, is that limp or is that just Nadal's superstitions? I'm not sure. But there was, I think, some discomfort. Um, despite that discomfort, I thought he was impressive against Apelka. I thought he returned. Just amazingly well, I mean, okay, it went to two tie breaks, and he needed to win it in tie breaks and he he played them flawlessly, but Apelka wins about sixty percent of his points on his second serve, normally, and it was down at about thirty percent against Nadal. Nadal was putting him in so many difficult spots, getting so many balls back, um really mixing up the way he would return sometimes he was. You know, really getting on top of the ball and pummeling it. Sometimes he was just chipping it back. It was kind of a master class, I thought, and Apelka actually led by a break in in the second set and Nadal got it back. Uh he just looked really determined and focused not to have to play three sets, perhaps because the foot was was bothering him. So yeah, I I, I thought in the end it was quite a good performance. But as you said, there are other players playing well and Nadal hasn't been quite at his best, so doesn't fill me with a huge amount of confidence that he, can, that he can keep this going through three more rounds, which he needs to win.
0: Well, what do we know about this foot injury? Because I think a lot of people would hear this and think, well, why is he playing? Why is he forcing his way through a match against Riley Opelka, having already won the Australian Open, and with the clay court season on the horizon, he's already pulled out of Miami next week. So why is he playing this event? Could he make things worse and put himself out for those huge events to come?
1: Yeah, it's interesting and I've thought about this and look, I could be wrong, but my understanding is that the injury is there and it's either a case of there's not any pain, you know, like during the Australian Open, he said there was no pain, but that doesn't mean the injury wasn't there. He was just able to play without pain and then you get weeks where there is pain and it's too much and he can't play and I'm not sure necessarily that playing makes it worse. If you remember, he actually said that the worst thing that happened to his foot uh, was the COVID lockdown when he didn't play. And actually, I think that was what ended up causing him some problems. So I'm not actually sure that playing on it does make it worse. I think it's just purely a case of whether or not he can manage the pain. And I think at the moment he can. And it's not awful. It's not great. He'd rather it not be like it is at the moment. But he's able to play through it. I think that's my understanding of the injury. And, you know, he's not playing Miami. He's already made that clear. And he said, hopefully, it's going to get better by the time he steps on the clay. And I think just the clay surface generally is a little bit better for his foot. So it's a tricky one because you do sort of think, oh, injury, rest, uh, recover, get ready for the clay. But I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that rest and recovery
0: is what he needs for the foot. But, I suppose he would need a certain amount of it just to relieve whatever pain he's feeling just at the moment because sure. that sounds like it's causing some sort of problems I was hearing hearing in commentary the other day that after that match against Djokovic, the one we all remember at the French Open when he was beaten in four sets that he was he was nigh on carried up stairs because after it with his arms around the shoulders of of team members to to help him up in help him up these staircases but you know. At the same time, he knows this injury better than anybody, doesn't he? He's obviously had a, a great deal of uh, work on it, but he also, I think, probably knows what the pressure points are and mm. what the what the limits are that he can push it to. And, uh, and he's clearly decided, I, I mean, it will be interesting to see whether he decides to just withdraw from this match today against Nick Kyrgios or whether he put pushes his way through. I I would imagine he'll probably try and do the latter, given the fact that he's made this commitment to play the event at all. Um, But what do you think about that? Let's assume he can get out there. Based on what you've seen, Kyrgios has had a walkover against Yannick Sinner because Sinner was unfortunately unwell ahead of that match, so he couldn't take to the court. Kyrgios has looked really good, um, I, I thought he was excellent the other day, day against Casper um in that match that we hyped up to <laughs> high heaven, um, and ended up being a bit of a damp squib in terms of uh, a contest. I mean, frankly, Kyrgios just came out all business, didn't he? He was efficient, he was professional. It was like rolling back the year, the, the clock five years to when he beat Djokovic at uh, at Indian Wells, and you know there was the odd through the leg shot that wasn't necessary, but it was almost like he was just trying to entertain himself because it was going all too straightforwardly. Um, and the only aggro that ended up happening was once the players had shaken hands and Kasparud had departed and Kirios sat down, looked to the camera and said, no more talking now, is there? Uh, and he, he said an F word and then he said none. Um, at which point I did think, well, you're talking, so somebody is. Uh, and also you've waited until the the opponent, you've had all this aggravation with has left before you've said that to him via the cameras okay whatever good performance Nick Um, plays against uh, Rafael Nadal next now they've had their moments as well haven't they over the years Kyrgios has said some things Nadal said some things I'll never forget Nadal celebrating wildly at Wimbledon after a really intense four-set win a few years ago uh, obviously, they had their very early match where Kyrgios broke on the scene and won in 2014. But given what you've seen now, is Kyrgios the favourite for this match? Oh
1: wow, I hadn't thought about that. I I think Nadal's the favourite, isn't he? Still, based on I not know the, the run I mean, he's on. Uh, he has had Kyrgios' number yes, generally. Yes, he is the favourite.
0: He is the favourite. I just I wouldn't be I surprised Kyrgios if Kyrgios is going to win.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't mm. be at all surprised if Kyrgios wins. He, he he doesn't strike me as someone who's going to be put off by having had a walkover either. That's often mm. something we talk about going into a match, how it can disrupt your rhythm. I don't know. That, that doesn't strike me as something that will really matter to Kyrgios. And I think sort of in terms of their respective levels, I think Kyrgios is probably playing better this week but as i said the other day you you just don't count Nadal out even even in, in seemingly impossible positions we've seen him win this this year um but i think it's very very close and i'm i'm pleased that Kyrgios is playing like this again you know it's his first first masters quarter final for 5 years you know since 2017 a guy of his talent you know it is just a, a stat like that is a reminder of of the gap between his talent and his results um but in this form like you said, there's enough there's enough fun stuff. There's enough bits to keep him loose, but also it's it's efficient, ruthless, good tennis that he's playing. And when he plays like that, that's when he's at his most dangerous. I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, listen, we're going to get onto the 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 fifth set tiebreak conversation that Catherine touched on in her voice note a little bit later. We're going to go through the rest of the the, the matches we've seen in Indian Wells first, and those that we've got coming up because it really has been. Full of intri- tri- intrigue and interest, really, this uh, this last few days. I-, I have loved this Indian World so far. And actually, it reminds me, Matt, of, of, of a, a message I got from Simon Briggs the other day, uh, the Telegraph's tennis correspondent, who, who we often have on the podcast. And, and Always great said, what, to get did- a message from oh, Simon. Oh, yeah, it is. It's always, it's always a journey. You never <laughs> know quite where it's going to take you. Um, but this one out of the blue was just, why does this tournament feel so full of life and compared to say last October's and I mean obviously the event didn't happen in March the last two years I mean I put it down to that I think that people in Indian Wells people have got in their head when does a tournament happen this one happens in March. It's a springtime tournament. The weather's a certain type in March. Everybody's just had the winter. They're absolutely sick of it. Like Catherine going out there, suddenly getting all this vitamin D and the air's clear and, and all the rest of it. It's just such a treat for everybody. Whereas you stick it in October, it comes after all the other summer tournaments in the US and the US Open. Players are hanging on. I mean, all credit to Paola and and Cameron Norrie for winning those tournaments. But The crowds were way down, weren't they, last... I mean, I can't exactly remember whether it was COVID affected in terms of attendance, in terms of rules. I just can't really remember it that well. But certainly the the expectation and the excitement levels were way down. I mean, they did really well to get the tournament played and I'm glad it was there. But I think it's that. What do you think?
1: I think so, yeah. I think people have their routines they they go to indian wells in march you know and i think simon in fact we had simon on the podcast during indian wells last year and, and he spoke about how a lot of people from canada come down in march to to go right, to yes. indian wells for the for the weather and and that kind of thing and and yeah i think look we're into indian wells in in october because we're a tennis podcast and indian wells is happening and and we're watching it but i think for a lot of casual tennis fans especially in the u.s season kind of ends after the u.s open you know and i think even even some of the big tournaments after the u.s open lack a little bit of buzz compared to what they would be if they were in another point of the season when you're building up to something and yeah i think people are thrilled to have indian wells back at at the right time of year and yeah I agree it's been it's been an enjoyable tournament so
2: far
0: mm. yeah well, I'm going to go through the rest of the men's draw given we're, we're at that point at the moment having covered Nadal and Kyrgios they are in the top half of the draw and the defending champion Cameron Norrie is still in there the winner of his quarterfinal he faces Carlos Alcaraz will face the winner of Nadal and Kyrgios now I saw Norrie overnight beat Jensen Brooksby in straight sets. It was 6-2, 6-4. It was actually a much, much better match than that sounds. Uh, I, I, I mean, Norrie got off to a flyer. He won the first three games of the match. He broke twice. I thought Brooksby looked a little off his game for the first 20 minutes or so, and then he found his way. It was notable... How different the atmosphere was in the night session to the the day. There were there weren't that many people in the crowd. It was still a good atmosphere in the night session, but it was sparsely attended compared to pretty packed crowds in the day sessions. Which I I always think of U.S. Opens and the night session there, and and this was certainly a different feel to that. And those that were there were really into it, but it it certainly didn't pack it out. I think maybe that you know, it's an older. Uh, audience generally. Um, I think it can get pretty cold at night in, in Indian Wells, bizarrely, given how how hot it is in the daytime. Um, but there you go, no cl- cloud cover at all. Uh, but, I mean, what really s- stuck out, Brooksby grew into his game and he kind of had to delve into what he's got. And he's got lots of options in order to just change the look of rallies and the feel of rallies with, a, with, with sudden slice forehands and um, exaggerated slice backhands and repeat, repeating them even when he doesn't need to, things like that. And that kind of got him back into the match and made it competitive with Norrie. He, he broke back for 4-all in the, the second set before Norrie won it. But what really hit me is just how relentless and how good Cameron Norrie was. This is a guy who... It turns out, I think, the, the lack of an off-season really really set him back. You know, if you think he played... The ATP Finals, brilliant performance to get to that, uh, uh, albeit as an alternate. Then he played the Davis Cup Finals. Then he's straight back out there playing ATP Cup, literally a few weeks later. I mean, it, there wasn't an off season for Norrie. I mean, he could barely have a holiday, let alone an off season and uh, and a training block. And and what they were saying in commentary, Naomi Brody was saying is that she she'd heard him talk about how he after that run of australian tournaments when he really didn't put any results up at all and and i thought there were alarm bells for me i thought okay he's had his he's had his season and he now thinks he's going to be able to back that up and maybe go further and he's going to find out that he's not as he's not as good as he hopes he will be and be able to get better this is his top level and other people will just rise above him that's that's honestly what i thought we were going to get after the first month of of the year and he recognised what was wrong, him and his coach, it appears, and just decided to build in a little a little mini training block after the Australian season in order to get ready for the tournaments that he's just played. And, I mean, he's played incredibly well. Um, and, I mean, it. I don't like to throw around Rafael Nadal comparisons too lightly because, obviously, he's nowhere near as good as Rafael Nadal, and neither is Carlos Alcaraz yet. And I make comparisons to them. But just in terms of what you're watching and what he does to an opponent, Norrie, the way he just never gives them a second to think and and to relax and to just play the sort of tennis they want. Um, He was brilliant. And I mean, we'll talk about Alcraz in a minute, but what's your sense of of what you're seeing from Norrie? Is Is this a surprise to you this year, this backup? It is,
1: yeah. And I think... We almost need to change the way we talk about Norrie. You know, I think whenever we talk about him, there's almost inevitably, I don't know, I'm I'm always worried I'm sort of patronizing him in terms of talking about him as a maximizer and making the most of what he's got. I think he's just this good now. This is just his level now. He's been playing like this for a year. This is who Cameron Norrie is now. He is someone who goes deep in tournaments, who pushes players, who... You know, you might think might be better than him, but they're not because of Cameron Norrie's awkward game style. You know, I think we've had Mm. had Martina Navratilova on Amazon Prime this week, talking a lot to Catherine, and she's she's really put her finger on what makes Cameron Norrie awkward for opponents: the fact that he can redirect the ball, the fact that his backhand is so different to his forehand. It's a it's a package that not many players come up against, and he uses that and. You know, combine that with his incredible fitness and his movement, and you've got a player there who is very, very difficult to beat. And he's got a good serve as well. And yeah, he's he's just a really, really good player now. And I think he's on the cusp of reaching the top ten for the first time. I think if he beats Alcaraz, he'll definitely get there. Um, yeah, th- this is who Cameron Norrie is now, and I'm I'm so impressed that that he's backing it up because yeah, like you, I I thought. I was a bit worried at the start of the season both in terms of this mm. this his level and his sort of new status how he would cope with all that but brilliant just so impressed I feel can't, I'm doing it again I'm can't... patronizing
0: him again <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid it will keep happening because can you see a time where he starts figuring high up in our predictions. See, I can't because I always end up overlooking him the same way as I always end up overlooking Angelique Gerber or Sophia Kennan or players like that that don't necessarily have these highlight reel sorts of games and I always think somebody's just going to get them. But I don't know. Maybe we will start thinking about him differently if this carries on. It's it's going to be very interesting. Um, one man I think we are thinking differently about and have been for a while is Alcaraz. And Catherine came up with that very vivid image of him just eating players for breakfast because uh, and every meal, frankly. Uh, and and I can understand where she's coming from. And the and the the point she made about people seeing him for the first time—they've heard the hype, and then they they put the eye test on him and, and watch him for the first time and and they can't quite believe what they're seeing. Now, if you put it into this perspective, I've seen him a lot and yet I watched him against Gal Monfils and I am still looking at shots and thinking, whoa, I, I was not expecting that. He, he and, and I think Monfils at the other end of the court was thinking the same. There was a look on his face at times. Now, he's The most spectacular athlete, one of the most spectacular we've ever seen on a tennis court. And yet Alcaraz was going toe-to-toe with him as if to sort of challenge him in terms of movement. Uh, And he was coming up with the answers. I think it was 7-5, 6-1 that match scoreline. Monfils has been playing well this week. And he's beaten Daniel Medvedev, for goodness sake. What are we witnessing, Matt? Why... Why is that? I mean, we've talked about Alcaraz before, but what are you noticing this week? Is there something even new to you?
1: Yeah, I think whenever I watch Alcaraz, he seems a little bit better. And that's such an exciting time in his career because you're seeing him improve literally in front of your eyes. I think his serve has got better. I've I've, I've heard um, pundits talk about maybe a little kink in his motion in the past and how that can be a bit of a weakness. Against Monfils, he just protected that serve so, so well. I think he only lost seven points on serve in the whole match. And, you know, Monfils is is a good returner. He can get himself in a lot of opponent service games. Um, And you've got this incredible blend at the moment with Alcaraz of this really youthful, carefree, extravagant tennis because he's an 18-year-old. And yet, at the same time, it's also tennis which is smart and well thought out and mature, it, I, I don't, I don't quite know how those two things mold together, but they do seem to. And just an example against Monfils is, is his use of the drop shot. You know, the way he pushed Monfils back continually with his massive ground strokes, and they are massive, especially the forehand, but the backhand can do damage as well. And then he'd just throw in a drop shot, and Monfils would get nowhere near it. There were there were many that he didn't even run for because Alcaraz called him out. He just did it at the right time, and that's smart. That's that's a tactic that he uses, and I just love, love, love watching Alcaraz play. And can I can I give you a stat, David, which I think you're going to be excited about? Oh yes, he's the youngest Indian Wells quarter finalist on the men's side since Michael Chang in 1989. And what did Michael Chang do in, my, in 1989, David?
0: Oh, now we're talking. He <laughs> won Roland Garros, folks, as a, what was it, 17-year-old? Well, okay, <laughs> and we know what I've predicted. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, look, I i was going to mention the drop shot as well. i I think he may well have the best drop shot in the sport. Carlos Alcaraz. And, I mean, we've we've barely seen it. It's just so well disguised. It is so devastating. The fact that he is able to leave Gael Monfils flat-footed and not bothering tells you everything. And the other thing I would say, just about the firepower element... Everybody was talking and playing back the gaumont Fils forehand that was hit at 124 miles an hour. That's what it was uh, measured at. It was one of those inside-out, cross-court ones at a cute angle that you probably have the maximum opportunity to hit flat-out shots from that position. And and it was amazing. But I was actually more taken by a, a, a shot of 107 miles per hour from Alcaraz just in a normal rally when he's just trading with Monfils and then without apparently looking to really throw his body into it any, in any particular fashion and without any great speed coming at him in order for him to use a trampoline effect on, he just pulled the trigger on the forehand down the line and Monfils did not move and the ball hit the court and then it hit the back fence straight without bouncing. You know, It was one of those, just bullets of a shot. And, uh, well, it's hard to imagine how this guy isn't going to win big soon. I mean look I've I've got him to win this tournament. So uh, we'll see. Um uh, he is going to play Cameron Norrie. That's an interesting match, isn't it? I mean I, I like I say I think Kraz wins the tournament. So to me he's beating Norrie, but but it'll be a good test. What what do you think the semi-final lineup's going to be from that half of the draw?
1: Well, Norrie and Alcaraz played at the US Open last year. I I think it might even have been in the first round. And Alcaraz threw him around. I mean, really, he just used his power and jumped on Norrie. That was probably the one little month of the year where Norrie wasn't actually playing that well. I don't think he had a brilliant build-up to the US Open. And then he obviously came from the US Open and and got it together again and won Indian Wells. So I think Norrie's in better form. I think it'll be closer, absolutely. Um but yeah, I'm gonna underestimate Cameron Norrie again and I'm gonna pick Carlos Alcaraz to win that.
0: You're telling me we're gonna get Alcaraz and Nadal?
1: I'm gonna go with Nadal. I he was my pick. As I said, I wouldn't be surprised if Kyros won that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Nadal. And yeah, I'm gonna go with Alcaraz Nadal. I'm guessing you're going Alcaraz Kyros.
0: Hmm. Mm. Not so sure now. <laughs> Thought of Alcaraz Nadal. How is Nadal not gonna let that happen? I don't know. No, I'm going to go curious. I think Nadal's probably just pretty much on fumes right now. Um, so what about the other half of the draw? There's Taylor Fritz, who got a really good win over Alex Dimonor. This was a, in a final set tiebreak. Dimonor won the first set of that. And then Fritz came back really well, I thought, to win that. Because he, was, he wasn't he was playing well in that first set. And Dimonor was... Um, ended up winning it 7-5, I think, in the third set tie-break, did Fritz. So Fritz now faces uh, Miomir Kecmanovic, who got an excellent win over Matteo Berrettini. I was sort of just following that on live scores, and I, I think Berrettini's such a good test for a player that's playing well against him, because Berrettini's going to bring a base level that's usually pretty high. Um, doesn't tend to differ that much and Ketsmanovic has got a lot of good wins or at least he's put up a lot of good performances this year where which have made me take notice and think this guy is actually a really talented player with firepower and he can hurt people
1: yes yeah, sneaky good start to the year for He mm. he he benefited and took advantage of Novak Djokovic not playing the Australian Open because he was due to face Djokovic in round one there and I think he ended up with a run to the round four, Ketsmanovich, and now, now into the quarterfinals of Indian Wells. Honestly, if, if you'd said to me when I was watching him at the Davis Cup finals last year, I mean, choke honestly multiple times against Mikhail Kukushkin in a match that seemed to go on forever. Ketsmanovich had so many chances to win it, and he just couldn't. And I just thought, I don't know, like this guy's talented, sure, but he doesn't seem to have any. Nerve or any ability to sort of take his talent and put it into winning tennis, but he seems to be doing that this year, and I agree beating berrettini is impressive um Fritz getting to the quarterfinals is is notable, I think as well I think that's three straight masters events where he 's reached at least the quarterfinals he's really showing consistency at this level now um he's made big improvements over the last year his his fitness has improved, his I think the way he competes has improved, perhaps those two things go a bit hand in hand. Um and he's got an amazing record in deciding set tie breaks. Yeah, I think I think for his career he's won nineteen out of twenty two that he's played in deciding set tie breaks, wow. which is phenomenal really, and I think says a lot about, about a player when they when they sort of do that well so, so repeatedly in big situations. But I think there's been quite a lot of talk about this being a bit of a moment for American men's tennis this this week, you know, in terms of we've had Tommy Paul beating Zverev, we've had be beating Sitsapas, we've had Corder and Apelka pushing Nadal very, very close. And obviously we've had Fritz, you know, now reaching the quarterfinals with a chance to go further. And I think on the one hand, that the fact that that, gets deemed a moment for American men's tennis sort of tells you the state that it's been in over the last few years, Mm. you know. Essentially, they've got one guy in the quarterfinals, but I can see why there's some excitement. You know, I think Brooksby, Fritz, uh, Cressy, Paul, Corder, they've got interesting games and they are going to have... Cressy. They are going to have big moments and big wins, I think. But the question is whether they can back up those wins. You know, Paul then lost to Dimonor after he beat Zverev. Mm. And, you know, um, and Pelka couldn't quite beat Nadal. You know, there's just... So far, there's been a bit of a ceiling in terms of doing it really consistently. And Fritz probably is the one who's, who's put it together most consistently, hence why he's their number one at the moment. But yeah, I've enjoyed watching Fritz this week and I would probably expect him to beat Keczmanovic. And he's got a big, big chance to get into the final here to be honest
0: yeah yeah well uh I guess Andre Rublev may have something to say about that because he's on a tear isn't he, he he's is. just beaten Hubert Hercatch uh, now faces Grigor Dimitrov who's having another good run he often plays well on these courts um Dimitrov beat uh John Isner in the uh, the previous round um what what is that in terms of a run for Rublev because he's won two tournaments in a row hasn't he I think he's on
1: twelve wins in a row. He won Marseille, he won Dubai, and now he's won three matches here. Yeah, he's in yeah. really good form. I mean, yeah, I've, I've said Fritz. I think Rublev has to be the favorite in that in that bottom yeah. half.
0: But I, I, it is. It will be an interesting moment if Fritz ends up playing Rublev. That that's. I often look at Fritz, uh, at Fritz and think, right, this is a moment for you to show if you've moved on. Have you, can you get over the Rublev hurdle now? Because there's another, like a Berrettini, you know, they, these are guys that are firmly in the top 10. And if you're going to break in there yourself, you've got to take one of these two out at some point. And, uh, and this is a chance for for Rublev, for Fritz maybe to do that. I noticed on um, Prime Video's coverage when Catherine was talking to Martina Navratilova, she was talking about Taylor Fritz and, and Martina was really effusive about his weapons. It felt like he'd got firepower. But said that his movement is always going to be a bit of an issue for him versus some of the very best movers. When you look at Alcaraz, I mean, look, obviously he's he's exceptional, but so is Rublev, and there's a number of these guys that that have got that over him. And uh, and how he, it's not that he's not working hard; it's just that maybe he doesn't have that physicality to him that, that that can explosively move off the spot and into the corners and back and forward and all the rest of it. So it will be very interesting to see whether he's able to take his game
2: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. now for a limited time home chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and of course free shipping on your very first box go to homechef.com/tennis that's homechef.com/tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life you heard it right so what about the the women's draw um the top half of it saw two s- Properly one-sided matches, Matt. We had Samantha Halep defeating Petra Martic 6-1, 6-1. And then Igor Svantec beating Madison Keyes 6-1, 6 Now, I saw Keyes in the previous round against Harriet Dart and she kind of blasted her aside and has done that to a lot of players and been efficiently winning his keys. I, I wouldn't have expected a one-sided match like that. Now, I know Svantec does do that to people quite a lot, but... Is that also Keyes not really producing, not turning up, do you, do you feel? For sure. like Keyes
1: didn't play well last night against Fiontech. Um, and it was a little bit the Madison Keyes story, really. You know, looking brilliant in the tournament, playing some really good tennis, and you're thinking, OK, is this the week where Keyes puts it together for the whole tournament? You know, six matches in a row or or whatever it is. And... It wasn't the week <laughs> because, yeah, she just she, she was very off her game, I would say. But that said, Svantec was on her game and took advantage. I mean, we talked the other day about Shviontech, uh having to win matches from a set down at the start of the week and showing that side of her game, that ability to stay present in matches, make comebacks, figure things out. She had to do the same against Angelique Kerber in the in the previous round to this. And she was also break down in the third set there. She had to really fight through that one. But this was one of those days where just everything was working for her. And she's got incredible movement that she can sort of nullify some of that Keys' power, I think. You know, I think she forces Keyes to hit more shots than Keyes normally has to hit. And then the errors sort of come um but she can also step on the power herself and just end points like within a shot, you know, with her forehand and the number of times she jumps into the ball and hits a forehand. I find her I find her fascinating to watch in that in that way. Um so yeah, she's sort of had this real consistency in slams, doesn't see Shriantek over the last year. She's getting that on tour now. She's got the most wins of anyone this season, and she's winning titles. You know, she won Doha, she's putting herself in a position here. She's He's in a really good place, I think, at the moment. Having made a coaching change, that seems to be working. Just everything seems to be coming together for So
0: It's an interesting matchup, that isn't it? Halop Svantek. That that's got the portents to be a special semi-final. Who who do you think's? You you think Svantek winning the title, but has Halop maybe given you pause for thought a little on that?
1: A little. I mean, we talk about. Uh, Sviantek beating keys being one-sided Halep Martich was arguably arguably even more one-sided there was a run in the middle of that match where Halep won 29 out of 30 points oh my goodness (laughs) there was just one in the middle there which Martich won but otherwise Halep just that's just golden set stuff yeah just dominated it was look again it was a case of Martich I think she just ran out of gas, to be honest. She she wasn't really moving that well, I didn't think. And Halep said it was the best match she played all season. And I would agree. She was she was brilliant. And Sviontek and Halep, in my mind, have had very memorable matches. You know, I remember they've played twice at the French Open. And once Halep won easily. And once Sviontek won very easily. And obviously went on to win the title. And then they played at the Australian Open last year. And that was a really tight match, I think. in the third, maybe, to Halep. I think Shefiontech's better on hard courts these days than she was a year ago, and I I would expect her to win. But yeah, Halep, I always say this, I think tournaments are better when Halep's in them and playing well, because she makes good matches, and I would expect this to be be another one of those. Uh, I'm pleased that Halep is seemingly happy, content, playing good tennis, um, and yeah, absolutely, it's got the makings of a great match.
0: Mm. Uh Paula Barossa, Catherine mentioned earlier, she beat Layla Fernandez. It was actually it was only six four, six four, and yet it was a lot felt closer than that. There were moments where Fernandez looked like she might be about to turn it around and uh and it was a good contest, Barossa eventually Just a little bit too much power, I think, on those particular courts, which suit her down to the ground, obviously. Defending champion, and I can see why, having watched this performance. She now faces uh, Veronica Kudamatova, who beat Marketa Vondrusheva. Uh, Maria Sakharie got a a retirement from Daria Saville uh, of Australia, formerly Daria Gavrilova, who... Just She ran out of gas, frankly. I mean, physically, her body just did not let her compete anymore. And she'd had a fantastic run to get to the quarterfinals and, and some big wins along the way. It's, it's lovely to see her back, actually. Uh, we 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 had the little um, taster of it, didn't we, back at the Billie Jean King Cup, where you saw her returning victory, really. And here she is now, back on the tour, somebody who could well have had her career curtailed completely uh ju- just a, sh- a short while ago and here she's back on the tour but maria sakari looks dangerous she's my pick for the title folks so you know it's going quite well um and uh she faces Sakkari uh, uh faces elena rebakina who beat victoria azarenka and then victoria golyabich and she also looks pretty dangerous
1: yeah i think i read that rebakina only lost serve once all tournament so she's really i think defending that big weapon of hers um she's someone who got an injury at the australian open and then had covid i think in february so we hadn't seen much of her for for a month or so but she seems to be playing very well again um i'm very interested in barossa kudamatova because kudamatova leads that head-to-head 3-0
0: no really
1: but what i think is interesting about that is that Certainly two of those wins came before Badosa had transformed herself into the player she is now. Uh, the right. third of those was in Charleston last year, which was, I think, probably the first tournament where Badosa took that next step. Uh, she beat Ash Barty there, I think, didn't she? And just generally started to emerge as as a top player. But I think it's just a great opportunity for Badosa to sort of show how she's moved on, how she's developed, how she is a different player now. And yet at the same time I can imagine a head to head like that having a bit of an impact on the match and, and Kudematova having confidence and Balossa maybe maybe a little bit of doubt against a player who has had her number. So there's there's a lot of intrigue I think surrounding that that quarter final. But yeah, I would I would expect Badosa to win. I think she's looked looked good this week and yeah, really really imposed her game and herself on Leila Fernandez.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, Barossa and Kuramatova are the second match on the Stadium 1 court today. Uh, so, round about 7.15 UK time, or 7.30, something around there. Um, and uh, that's preceded by Maria Sakkari against Elena Rabakina. That's the first match on 11 o'clock local time in Indian Wells. So, it's 6pm UK time. I know Catherine is on air from 5.45 on Prime Video. So, 15 minutes of build-up with Martina Navratilova, uh, Gregor Rozenski, Daniela Hantakova get to see Catherine what more do you want uh so get watching from 5:45. we'll be glued to it um she's doing a brilliant job and then after the two women's quarterfinals it's Rafael Nadal against Nick Kyrgios it says here on the app around about 10 p.m uk time now I don't tend to get past 10 p.m much these days in terms of bedtime but I might I might make an exception
1: break your rules <laughs>
0: Yes, although well, I don't think I'm going to get through to Carlos Alcaraz against Cameron Norrie, which is due at 1am uh, UK time, so that's going to have to be a an early morning job for me uh, tomorrow. So um, lots to look forward to. Now, Matt, final set tie breaks have been introduced at all of the Grand Slams in all levels of the tournament. So singles, doubles, wheelchair singles, um, juniors... And it's created some conversation. I, I'm not entirely sure. I, I agree with Catherine in terms of the tennis journalists that I've heard from. Certainly, my colleagues and and I, I'm not that bothered about it. <laughs> to be quite honest, although I do think it's a good idea. I think I would, I would have gone with this as well. I think they've made the right call. It is only a 12 month trial at the moment starting at and garros for 12 months they're going to see how it goes but yeah they'll get to six all in the final set and then they'll have a 10 point tie break so the the australian open has one out they all four of them had different systems in in the last couple of years since they initially departed from playing out and ensuring a, a break of serve was required you may remember wimbledon went to 12 all and then had a final set um 10 point tie break at 12 games all US Open has been doing it for decades at six all they've always had a, a final set tie break the French Open was continuing to to require a, a, a game to be broken and they didn't have a tie break at all in the fifth set and Australian Open had gone to this six all and 10 point tie break. now they've all decided Australian Open you got it right all along we're going to do the same so for the next 12 months I like it for the reason that Nobody's going to be sitting there thinking, how does this end again? What are they doing now? Why why haven't they had a tiebreak? Or why have they had a tiebreak? Everybody knows what the rule is. That's what happens in the final set of Grand Slam matches. I totally agree with Catherine that it still seems wrong that um, women are playing best of three set matches and have now had their matches in some of the Grand Slams curtailed, potentially when they're getting... Are the most interesting i still overall i'm i like the idea of of a uniformity to it personally so i'm happy with that but there isn't a uniformity to it because women are playing best of three all the time and men are playing best of five all the time that's my big problem with it what do you think yeah
1: gosh lots to say um i guess what Catherine means in terms of lots of opinion generally i mean i saw a lot of opinion flying around on on Twitter yesterday and it did sort of make me think maybe what we had was the best way to sort of please everyone with them all being different whereas you know at least at least you know everyone's going to be satisfied at one point of the year because I think it's very difficult to find common ground you know because you get your traditionalists mm. who love the French Open as it was they're not going to like the tie break. but then you get the sort of Save the players camp, you know, who who want the tie break. And then you get somewhere in between like Wimbledon. But to me, to me, Wimbledon was my least favourite of, of all of the solutions. I, I didn't see the point of carrying on to 12-all. I think when once you get there, you just want to carry on. Or you want to stop at 6-all and have a tie break. Um, of the possible solutions, it's pretty clear in my mind that I like the 10-point tie break at 6-all in the fifth set. Same here. I like that. I, I think it elevates the fifth set compared to the other tie breaks it gives it a climax it stops the matches from getting ridiculous i'd say there's an argument for carrying on finals i don't necessarily think you need a tie break in in the final because there's no there's no next match there's no schedule to be interrupted that's just something that kind of occurs to me um but yes i agree what what bothers me most about this is you're taking an issue which affects men's matches only that they're too long and you're inflicting the solution on women's matches as well. I don't think anyone thinks best of three is too long. Maybe Patrick Moritoglu, but otherwise people are happy with best of three in terms of it not being too long. And yet we're then curtailing them at their most interesting point. And I think with best of five, you get the ebbs and flows, you get the momentum swings, you get the extended drama over three or four hours, five hours even, and then you get this definitive end point, and that's okay with a tie break after that long. I think with best of three, yeah you just you just stop in the match at its interesting point, and I love best of three playing it out. I absolutely love that, I think that's a great format for tennis, so that that disappoints me, and I think that comes back to your issue of the big issue here being best of three versus best of five, not how the matches end, like I don't think. I don't think anyone was going away from the Australian Open this year thinking, oh, that was a really great tournament, but I wish a match had finished 13-11 in the final set. You know, I don't think anyone was going away similarly from Roland Garros last year, really, thinking, oh, I've really missed final set tie breaks. I, like, I, I think the bigger issue here is best of three versus best of five. You know, these, these slams have had different final set solutions for ages, and they've been, they've been fine. They've been great. I get the point about uniformity and sort of making it less confusing. I think there is an argument for that, and that's why they've brought this in. I didn't mind the difference too much of all of them. I like the 10-point tiebreak the best. But, yeah, I agree. The bigger issue here is best of three versus best of five and imposing something which is for best of five on best of three and also just generally having that discrepancy like we talked about at the Australian Open where it really reared its head as a problem in the in the second week there where the men's matches had time to develop into epics and the women's matches simply didn't and I think I'd rather a bit more focus and attention went on that problem rather than the final set solution would be sort of how I end up feeling about it.
0: If if there is a refusal to bring in best of five tennis at all into women's tennis uh, are you therefore saying that women should be allowed to just play it out and not have a tie-break at all in the third set, whilst men must. Because whilst I get the point, I still have a problem with that in terms of the viewing experience. It's confusing. Possibly. I mean, I don't think it's that confusing. To me, you're making it worse. You're (laughs) bringing another difference between the two. I don't think it's that confusing.
1: Best of three, you play it out. Best of five, you have a tie-break. I mean... Is that that
0: bad? It just seems not. Why would it be more? Why would we have it more different than it even is now? I mean that. I mean, I get the point. You, you're kind of you're solving a problem because they haven't solved the other one. Exactly. You're trying to come up with a, another solution that doesn't really work to solve a solution to, to solve a problem that you you don't want to address, which is what not you, <laughs> but tennis doesn't want to address. I mean, look, everybody knows that I and I think my. Uh, Colleagues here on the Senators Podcast, Matt and Catherine, we all agree that the way to solve this is to bring in best of five from, say, fourth round or quarters onwards uh, for both genders um, and play best of three, I think, all the way up until then. Now, yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting, the reactions you get. I, I floated this again on Twitter yesterday, and this is the bit that I do get exercised about. Um, and so did lots of other people. This is what what I think really got people going when I mentioned it. Danny Valverde came at me and said, Let it go. Leave five-set tennis alone. Rene Stubbs replied, Women don't need to play best of five. We've had it before, and they don't need or want it. Now, I'd like to know where the evidence is of of when they've been offered it. Um, I'd like to know what meetings have taken place, where it has been floated as a, a genuine option for women's tennis to have best of 5 set tennis from quarterfinals onwards at grand slams to elevate those tournaments the most important tournaments in the world and to give women the same stage as the men have i would like to know has that ever been presented as an option at women's tennis meetings on the wta tour or not um and also have they had it before they had it just at the tour finals for a few years is my recollection um she says you don't pay more for a three-hour movie or a two-hour one and frankly there's no guarantee the three-hour movie is better yeah agree with you um but that's not really the point i'm making we want quality great tennis period also why do the women have to change i do get that point but if they both adapted and played the same duration and made the best of the the schedule and the sharp end of a tournament, I think that that's where the sport would be at its best. And actually, Matt, I've done a little bit of research before coming on and run the numbers on what has happened in the last 20 Grand Slam finals, men and women, at all the four Grand Slams, to see what the stats show about the number of straight sets matches you get um, in the women's game, versus the number you get in the men's game over the best of five. And and as you would imagine, it's a pretty stark difference. Um, in men's tennis, where they're playing best of five sets at the Grand Slams, of the Grand Slam finals, 69% uh, of matches in women's tennis, rather, in best of three, 69% have ended in straight sets. In men's tennis over best of five, only 41% have ended in straight sets. And I think we would probably all agree that we, we remember finals more if they're not straight sets. Generally, we won a contest. And you've got a 28% difference between the two in terms of what, which one goes straight sets and which one doesn't. Now, obviously, that's not surprising because you've got more chance to go uh, a longer route if you've got best of five than you have best of three. But I just feel that that's, that's really something worth considering. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the point, all the rest really, of it. isn't it?
1: That's the point. Yeah. That's that's why we want those uh, biggest matches at the biggest tournaments to have the best possible chance to be as good as they can be. Um, and look, I, I, I love best of three. I, I don't necessarily think um, there's anything wrong with best of three, but I just think best of five can be better, you know, and can at least allow for matches to get better and yeah i think i think we've been pretty clear on that in terms of in terms of uh how we feel about that and it's true that the best of three versus best of five has this knock-on effect of how i feel about the final set um so i can't detach how i feel about the final set from best of three versus best of five like to me they are intertwined issues Um, which is why I think it's so difficult to have a sort of clear opinion. And the first thing you need to solve is the best of three versus best of five. Otherwise, the final set's going to continue to just be a problem, I think. I think sort of in an ideal world, everyone's playing best of five and we're playing sets out, final sets. But we've got TV constraints, we've got players' schedules constraints, we've got trying to fit everything in to two weeks. So we have to compromise somewhere. And I think the sort of, compromise really has been never even considering five sets for the women and i think that's a problem and it's and it's never even been considering going down to best of three for the men to allow the women to play best of five and it's all been focused on final sets when really i don't think that's the big issue as i've said i think the big issue is more three versus five
0: Mm. okay well we've had fun with that um (laughs) (laughs) right well we'll be back on monday with another edition of the tennis podcast to wrap up india wells and hopefully hear from Catherine again um we have our mascot for the week which is teddy the norwegian is it lunderhound yeah Matt nailed it i've got that right excellent okay <laughs> adopted in November by uh, Anna and Colin uh, which is uh, most marvellous uh, I've got my mascot Darwin Catherine's got Carter Matt has got Gerald the cat. our executive producers are our top blokes Chris Albert Lee and Carl Vinegartner. Uh, we'll have shout outs again on Monday and don't forget that listener question special for friends uh, that uh, is going to be coming out in a couple of weeks time you can get your questions into us you can chuck your opinions around if you you're a friend and uh um and we'll uh, we'll read them all whether we use them is up to us but we'll read them all um and yes you can become a friend uh, by signing up via our show notes uh, if you can't have a little look down your phone right now uh and uh, you can do that but thanks very much for listening to this one we'll be back in a few days time see you soon